All right, well, it's about time to get started, so let's do that. Officially, good morning. Welcome to the Calvary Community Church Sunday School class. For those of you who might be joining the stream or watching it later who don't know me, my name is David Kaposha, and it's my pleasure to open up the Word of God with you. Hope you had a good Resurrection Sunday and that you uh, also enjoyed our special lesson on ancient Israel's geography on the week before. But we're moving on today and moving into Unit 8 of our Answers Bible Curriculum from Answers in Genesis. So Unit 8 is going to take us over the next line lesson, over the next nine lessons through the judgeship of Gideon to the end of Saul's kingship. So we're going through the book of Judges, of Ruth, and of 1 Samuel. But today we're back in the book of Judges, and we're looking at God's gracious acts with Israel despite the people's continual downward spiritual spiral. Now, we don't have time in our class to look at each phase of this cycle that we've outlined, this sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance cycle. But we are going to talk about, in the book of Judges, we're going to talk about two of the judges that God raises up. We're going to talk about Gideon, and we're going to talk about Samson. And this week it's Gideon, next week we talk about Samson. You may be somewhat familiar with the account of how God used Gideon to save Israel, But let's look at that account again together with fresh eyes so that we might know and that we might apply all that God has for us in this holy history. One thing we're going to discover pretty quickly is that Gideon was a weak man of fear, but one also that God transformed into a mighty man of faith. And could we not all benefit from a similar transformation today in our own lives, considering the many difficult circumstances and temptations that we face? What is it that we can learn from the account of Gideon, especially when it comes to knowing and trusting in the only God and Savior that there is? That's what we want to find out. So, before we get into it, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you are the Savior. There is no Savior besides you. Lord, when you decide something, it cannot be controverted. We thank you, God, that when you act, it is always for the good of your people and for the glory of your own name. But Lord, we're going to see that we're so much like Gideon. We are weak. We are so many times fearful and doubting. And yet, God, we can become mighty men, women, and even children of faith. Lord, help me to be able to explain your word now and help us to pay attention to this wonderful account that's given in your word of things that really happened and that are meant to instruct us. Pray, Lord, you would work in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please take your Bibles and open up to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Book of Judges, chapter 6, where we're going to start with looking, or we're going to be looking at a number of sections between chapter 6 and 7. We're going to start by just looking at God's call, God's calling of Gideon in Judges 6, 11 to 24. Now, just to summarize a little bit, at the beginning of Judges chapter 6, where we get the situation that Gideon encounters, after a period of peace and obedience in Israel, the people of Israel once again turn away from God to serve idols and to do evil. And God has, in covenant faithfulness, allowed Israel to once again be oppressed by a foreign power. This time it is the people of Midian. Now, if you remember from our geography lesson, the precise habitation of the people of Midian is not known, but they seem to have lived southeast of Israel on the Arabian coast next to the Red Sea. Well, these Midianites, they team up with Amalekites and some other eastern tribes to oppress Israel specifically by starvation. The Midianites, with their great armies, they will constantly attack different portions of Israel and then destroy all the crops that they can find and all the livestock that they can find. Also, these enemies, they bring their own animals into Israel's land to eat up the ground's produce. So they kind of act like a plague of locusts. They come in, they eat and destroy, and they leave nothing left for, or they leave nothing for Israel. And Israel, meanwhile, is just hiding in caves and dens and in strongholds. Eventually, though, Israel cries to the Lord, cries to their covenant God, Yahweh. And God, he sends a prophet to tell Israel that, or to remind Israel, it is Yahweh who brought them out of the land of Egypt, not their false gods, and he actually charged them not to serve the gods of the land. The prophet who 
relays this message to Israel, reminds them, you have not kept this charge from God. So God rebukes Israel, even in their repentance. But then what? That's where we pick up the account in verse 11. So follow along with me as I read now Judges 6, verses 11 to 24. The word of God says, Then the angel of the Lord, that is Yahweh, covenant name there, Then the angel of Yahweh came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of Yahweh appeared to him and said to him, Yahweh is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Yahweh looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But Yahweh said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour, put the meat in a basket, and the broth in a pot, and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. He did so. And he did so. Then the angel of Yahweh put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of Yahweh vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that he was the angel of Yahweh, he said, Alas, O Lord Yahweh, for now I have seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. Yahweh said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to Yahweh and named it, Yahweh is peace. To this day, it is still an Ophrah of the Abizrites. Right, this is the first section we want to analyze, and as always, we want to start our analysis with just simple observations of the details of the text. So what do we see here? Note who is said to speak to Gideon in our passage. We're told at different times, like in verses 11 to 12, that it's the angel of Yahweh. It's the angel of God. But we're also told that it is Yahweh himself. We see this in verses 14 and 16. By now we're somewhat familiar with this phenomenon. How can these descriptors both be true at the same time? It's the angel of Yahweh, and yet it's Yahweh? It's because they're the same. The angel of Yahweh is Yahweh, and yet distinct from Yahweh. Though the doctrine of the Trinity is not as clearly revealed in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, what we're seeing here is that doctrine manifest. The Son of God is speaking and acting on behalf of God as Yahweh's messenger. So this is God, the Son of God even, speaking with Gideon. Notice what Gideon is doing in verse 11 when God comes to speak to him. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, this is not what one would normally do, but he's, he's doing this in order to save the wheat from the Midianites. He's hoping that beating the grain in the wine press will prevent any marauding Midianites from seeing the grain, this food, and attacking and taking it. Using the wine press, by the way, probably indicates there wasn't very much grain to be beaten. I mean, wine presses are not usually that big. Geography side note here says that Gideon is in Ophrah. From what we understand about this place name, Ophrah was a town in the Jezreel Valley, which is, if you remember, just north of the hill country of Samaria or the hill country of Ephraim and Manasseh, which makes sense because he says he's from Manasseh, so this would be around where the tribal inheritance is. He's in the Jezreel Valley, which is normally a great place for growing wheat. Now note what God says to Gideon in this passage. He says a couple of things. In verse 12, he says to Gideon, Yahweh is with you, O valiant warrior. 
That is, God confirms his presence with Gideon and he pronounces Gideon a mighty and powerful warrior. Then in verse 14, Yahweh says further, Go, enlist your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? God again makes reference to Gideon's strength and he commands Gideon to deliver Israel from Midian. And then notice verse 16, God also says to Gideon, Surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Now God uses the word surely, emphasizing the trustworthiness of what he is announcing, what he is saying. He promises that he himself, Yahweh, will be with Gideon, and he also promises that Gideon will defeat Midian as one man. That is, totally. It's going to be a total defeat of the enemy. Now these are some pretty amazing words from God. Some uh, great assurances and promises. But notice Gideon's response. Gideon, at first, notice, addresses God as Lord, but the term is not in all capital letters in our Bibles. Remember, when it's in all capital letters, that's just the translators telling us that the writer or the speaker is using the covenant name for God, Yahweh, that name that was special between God and Israel. But Gideon's not using that name at first, just Lord. Now, what does this tell us? Well, he's using this more generic, respectful title, it could be translated even as Sir, which is what we see in the ESV. It tells us a little bit of something about whom Gideon thinks he's speaking to at first. Just, you know, maybe some random person that you want to be respectful to. Also, Gideon clearly does not believe God's encouraging words. Again, at least at first. Because Gideon questions after God says, you know, the Lord is with you, Yahweh is with you. Gideon questions whether God is really with him or with Israel. And note the reasons that Gideon gives in verse 13. He says, look, the circumstances are terrible. We don't see the mighty works and the miracles of God. These things that we've heard about. And God has given Israel into Midian's hand. He's abandoned us. Further, in verse 15, Gideon believes that he himself is unable to deliver Israel. He says, I'm not from a great family. and I'm the youngest or least in my family. Who am I? How could I deliver Israel? But then notice after God says the third statement to Gideon, there's a shift in the way that Gideon responds to God. Gideon starts to realize something. And he tells the angel of Yahweh in verse 17, I'd like a sign from you that it is you who speak to me. And how does Gideon want God to verify himself? Well, he wants him to do something special with an offering. So Gideon prepares a meal. He puts it on the rock just like God tells him to. And then in verse 21, when God touches with his staff this offering, this meal that's prepared, it instantly incinerates. And then the angel of Yahweh disappears. Well, Gideon gets his verification. It is the angel of Yahweh. It is God himself that he's speaking to. How does that make Gideon feel? Does he say, man, that was awesome. I'm so glad. Wow, I got to talk with God. That's not his reaction. His reaction is very much like the reaction we see throughout the scriptures. When someone realizes they're talking with God or with an angel of God, he's terrified. He realizes he's met and spoken with the I am, and he thinks he's going to die. But God he speaks to him again, and he says to him, Peace, peace to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon builds a commemorative altar and names it Yahweh is Peace. Right, we've observed the main basic details of the passage. Let's proceed now to questions of interpretation. Things that may not be quite as apparent, and we'll have to look at the details of the passage to answer. All right, first, why does God call Gideon? I mean, he could have called a whole bunch of people in Israel. Why choose Gideon? We might want to say, well, it's because Gideon is so strong and capable. I mean, he says, you're a valiant warrior. That's why he chose Gideon. But based on what we've observed in the passage, does Gideon seem like a great choice for a deliverer or a poor choice for a deliverer? I think we'd have to say he looks more like a poor choice. He doesn't seem strong, courageous, or faith-filled at all. He's hiding in a wine press to beat grain. He doesn't believe God when God gives him encouragement. He questions God's care. And he doesn't think his family background or life situation give him the capability to accomplish anything great for God or for Israel. 
Yet God calls this man, Gideon, and he even affirms him as a valiant warrior. But how can this be? I mean, God can't be lying. So how can God call fearful, inadequate-looking Gideon a strong warrior? Again, we might think, well, all right, maybe he's not strong right now, but it's in there somewhere. Gideon, you just need to believe in yourself. But again, if we notice the passage, that's not where God directs Gideon's thinking. What is it that God says to Gideon that's supposed to strengthen and embolden Gideon? What's to give Gideon confidence? Merely the statement, I will be with you. I will be with you. We're going to see that Gideon will indeed be a strong warrior, but it's not because of his own natural courage or might. It's because God is with him. God empowers Gideon to act. And this situation may sound familiar. Where else in the Bible do we have someone who believes himself incapable of doing God's work, and God, rather than telling that person how capable he really is deep down, he simply tells that person, I will be with you. Where else have we seen that? You can write the answer in the chat. Yeah, you're right, Lyndon. This is exactly what we saw with Moses at the account of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Moses proved himself to be a very capable leader of Israel and actually a pretty good speaker. You remember he says, oh Lord, I've never been a great speaker, not even from my youth. But actually it proved to be the opposite. He was a great leader and a great speaker. How did that happen? It's because God worked in him. He empowered Moses to believe and obey. He was with Moses. That's what he promised right at the beginning. Now we'll have more to say about why God chooses Gideon, but even now we can see this is ultimately about God rather than any particular ability in Gideon. Now another thing I want to bring up here, another question to bring up, When Gideon questions whether God is really with Israel, what is missing from Gideon's understanding of Israel's situation? Now God says, you know, Yahweh is with you. And he says, how could Yahweh be with me? How could Yahweh be with us? What's missing from Gideon's understanding? Actually, a couple of different things, a number of different things. And I'm going to put these specifically on the screen. First, Gideon forgets what brought Israel into this situation. It's not God's cruel or uncaring abandonment, but it's the people's continual sin. Gideon asks, why are these things happening to us? Implying that they didn't do anything to make it happen to themselves. But of course, the answer is rather obvious from the context and from what we've seen in the book of Judges. The answer is these things are happening to Israel because of Israel's sin. Gideon forgets this. Second, Gideon forgets that blessing is not the only sign of God's presence. God's judgment and discipline is also a sign of God's presence. Because, let's face it, when these circumstances that Israel are experiencing, they are exactly what God has promised. He is proving faithful to his covenant word to the people of Israel. He is proving himself trustworthy because he told them, if you depart from me... If you turn away from me and serve other gods, then I will bring these difficult circumstances on you. I will cause you to be oppressed. I will cause you to be conquered by other nations. So Gideon really should not be asking, where is God? Because God is right there, keeping his covenant with his people, doing exactly what he promised. He is judging Israel's sin until Israel repents. Israel's circumstances are not accidental. They're not out of control. They're actually a sign of God's continual continued special relationship with his people. Just because he's not experiencing the blessing of God doesn't mean that God is not there. In fact, God is showing himself to be there. And then finally, another thing that Gideon, a fundamental truth that Gideon forgets, is that just because you don't see something happening doesn't mean it isn't happening. I mean, consider the great irony. (laughs) Gideon complains that God is not showing any of his mighty works. Where is God? What's the great irony in all that? He's talking with God right there. Where's God? Uh, he's talking to you. I don't see any mighty works from God. Uh, maybe consider that his angel is right in front of you and can make this sacrifice instantly incinerate. Uh, 
Gideon is asking where God is and where the miracles of God are, but they're actually happening right in front of him. Now, we've seen this kind of thing before, where God is at work, even miraculously at work, and people don't realize it. Remember when Abraham went to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac, he didn't know that while he was enduring that testing of faith and ultimately proving his faith by preparing to sacrifice even his own son to God, that God was at the same time providing a ram, a ram that would be caught in the thicket right right where Isaac and Abraham would go. And that ram would be the substitutionary sacrifice. It was happening. God was arranging it. But Abraham didn't know it at the time. In a similar way, Gideon has no idea what God is doing. But rather than trusting God like Abraham did, Gideon complains. He thinks that because I don't see what God is doing, that is proof that God is doing nothing. It's the old, if I can't see it, it doesn't exist attitude. And we're prone to this ourselves, aren't we? Actually, let's think about application for a moment. Aren't these things that I've just shared with you, that Gideon forgets in his thinking, aren't they the same things that we sometimes hear from others today or even say to ourselves that we feel? We ask, where is God? God obviously doesn't exist, doesn't have power, or he doesn't care because, and we pull up the same excuses that Gideon does, my circumstances are terrible. If God did exist, he obviously wouldn't let these things happen to me. I mean, so many people in the world are suffering. A good God couldn't possibly exist and allow this. And I don't see any evidence of God working in the world. No one that I know is getting saved. No miracles are happening around me. People just continue to be evil. Nothing is changing. There is no God. Or if there is, he's not paying attention. He obviously doesn't love me and he doesn't love people. You ever thought these things? You hear these things? Well, like Gideon... We need to realize and we need to communicate to others that, first, the evil and trouble that we experience today is because of what we have done, not because of some deficiency in God. We, with our ancient parents, we sinned against God in the garden. And we continue to sin. We show our solidarity with with the first humans when we continue to sin and rebel against God in our lives. We're simply reaping, in the circumstances we encounter, we are reaping what we ourselves have sown as a rebellious human race. So God is not not obligated to do good to us. We're rebels. The fact that he allows any good to happen to us is a ridiculous mercy from him. So instead of asking, why am I not experiencing good? Or why don't I experience more good? We ought to be asking, why do I experience any good at all? Considering my sins against God. Considering my participation in rebellion along with the rest of humanity against God. I shouldn't be saying, where is God because good things aren't happening to me. I should be saying, how can God, who is holy, allow anything good to come my way? We need to realize the same thing that Gideon failed to realize. And second, we need to realize that the suffering that we see or experience in the world is actually proof that God is faithful and his word is true. Because what did God promise? God promised that there would be consequences for sin. God also promised that nothing in the world would ultimately last or satisfy as a result of the curse of sin. And God also promised that he would use suffering to draw people to himself and to sanctify them, to put his glory on display, actually. So when we experience one of these realities, the brokenness of the world, the consequences of sin, or the sanctifying nature of suffering, we ought not to say, where is God? But instead we should say, here is God. The word of the Lord is proving true once again. He said that this would be the case, and I see that it is. So if you're listening and you don't know Jesus Christ, don't be surprised at the troubles you experience in your life. These are what God promised would happen as a result of Adam and Eve's sin and even your own sin. But if you do know Christ, again, don't be surprised at the trouble that you experience because you're still in a sin-cursed world that is awaiting redemption, just as the Bible says. 
and your Lord specifically promised you, Jesus specifically promised you that you would have tribulation in this world, but for your good and his glory. God is not far from you when you experience trouble. He's actually there in the trouble, proving himself faithful to his word. So again, we need to realize the same thing that Gideon needed to realize. That trouble we experience, on the one hand, it is what we ourselves have sown and we are reaping it. Second, it's actually proof that God's word is true and he's being faithful. He's actually in the trouble. And third, when we don't see God acting, that does not mean that God is inactive. Rather, we know from what he told us in his word that he is always active. And we can doubt this, we often do, And we say to ourselves, why isn't this person saved yet? Why haven't doctors found a cure for my cancer or for my particular ailment? Why is China still getting away with persecuting Christians? Why is abortion still legal? Where's the money I need for my medical bills? Where's the spouse that God has for me? Why are we still in the COVID-19 quarantine? God, why aren't you doing anything? Have you forgotten about me? Have you forgotten about us? Often we ask these questions not out of faith, but out of sinful unbelief. And we charge God with wrong in our hearts. Where are you, God? I don't see you acting. But God is good. He's not cruel. He does not forget. He demonstrates this again and again in the Bible. And he is always acting, always bringing his will to pass. The Bible says he doesn't sleep. He doesn't go and take a break. Now, in a sense, he did and the first week of creation, just to set a pattern for us, but in another sense, he never takes a break. Now, God is not obligated to do for us what he did for Jacob. Remember the whole thing with Jacob's staircase, Jacob's ladder? God doesn't have to do for us what he did with Jacob, pulling back the curtain and letting us see the heavenly staircase with the angels going up and down on it. Those angels were a testimony that God is indeed at work, even when we don't see it. God doesn't have to do that for us because he did it in the scriptures. God often secretly works in his own way, in his own timing. And we don't see it until much later. Maybe never in this life. So we are to proceed by faith in that truth. Doing so, of course, requires humility. It requires submission to God, saying, all right, God, you're you're the one in the high place. You're the one who's allowed to... You don't need to be questioned. I need to take the low place and trust you. These two qualities, humility and trust, these are things that the flesh is very loath to embrace. It doesn't want you to take the humble place before God and say, God, I don't need to know. God, you know. Take care of it. Yet, trust, this humble trust in God, it is essential if we are to have peace in the middle of difficult circumstances. Now, it's true for Gideon. It's certainly true for us today. Do you want peace during this COVID-19 crisis? And you need to stop asking yourself, where is God? You need to realize that he is here. He is in the trouble. He is proving himself faithful, and he is doing good to those who know him and love him. Well, God calls Gideon, but what does Gideon do next? Let's look at the next section of Judges chapter 6 and 7. I actually paraphrase verses 25 to 40. We won't read through this section together, but God commands Gideon, additionally to what he has already commanded him, to destroy his father's Asherah and altar to Baal. So there are some idols, even in the place where he's living, even in his own household. And God says, get rid of those. Go and destroy those. Again, Gideon should have known. Why are these things happening to us? Uh, Maybe the idols in your own household have something to do with that. Anyways, God commands him to destroy these idols, and Gideon does. But because Gideon is fearful, he does it secretly at night. He fears the idolatrous community around him. He he fears a reprisal from them, so he tears down this altar, and he tears down the Asherah at night. But the people find out, and they call for Gideon's death. They said, who did this? Let's put him to death. Gideon's father, though, saves Gideon's life by saying, hey, if Baal really is a god, let Baal contend for himself. So Gideon's, Gideon survives. Shortly afterwards, the text says the Spirit of God comes upon Gideon. That doesn't mean that he was saved, 
The Spirit of God worked in a slightly different way in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. Whenever we read the Spirit of God came upon somebody in the Old Testament, that is an indicator of empowerment for special service. And this can happen on somebody who knows God or somebody who doesn't know God. But we're going to see Gideon is ultimately someone who does know God. He proves himself to be a man of faith. Anyways, God's Spirit comes upon Gideon. And Gideon sends out a call to his fellow Israelites to gather and fight against Midian. And as the people of Israel come together, that is, those around where Gideon was, Gideon asks God for two more miraculous signs. He's looking for more assurance from God, and he says, Hey, there's this fleece thing. Could you make it wet? Could you make it dry? And show me that you really are with me. Now, God is not obligated to provide these signs. He's already made clear to Gideon, even by a miraculous sign that he's with Gideon, But God grants Gideon's request, and he grants him two more miraculous signs. But with the Israelites gathered, let's see what God and Gideon do next. Let's look at Judges chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. Here's what it says in chapter 7. Then Jerub Baal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. Yahweh said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into your hands, or into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore, come proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then Yahweh said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And Yahweh said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. Yahweh said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the three hundred men who lapped, and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the three hundred men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. All right, we won't spend as much time on this section of text, but let's make some observations. As the army of Israel gathers, notice in verse 2, God's conclusion about the army's size. It's too large for Israel to receive the victory. Why is this? God says specifically, Israel might take credit for the victory in its own strength. So, God downsizes the army via the means in verse 3. He tells Gideon to send all the fearful ones away. 22,000 of the original 32,000 Israelite warriors leave, and that leaves 10,000 others. But how does God respond to this new army size in verse 4? He says it's still too big. And he further reduces the army, has Gideon further reduce the army by this somewhat perplexing issue of how the soldiers drink from a body of water. In verses 6 to 8, God tells Gideon to take the soldiers who lap the water like dogs though these soldiers are also said to be the ones who put their hands to their mouths. So what exactly are we supposed to be picturing here? I actually have a picture on the screen, but how are we supposed to understand this? Well, perhaps the men who are lapping like dogs, they cup the water in their hands, bring it to their mouths, and then lap it with their tongues. That would be an odd way to drink water. John MacArthur Study Bible understands this description to mean that the men's hands are acting like dogs' tongues, drawing up the water to the men's mouths. So, therefore, this description of lapping is really those who cup the water in their hands and bring it to their mouths before drinking it. God says, take those men, don't take the men who kneel to drink the water. That seems to be the way what's going on here. How many soldiers does Gideon end up with, according to verse 8? Just 300. Gideon sends all the others away. But how many soldiers is Gideon up against? It's not said here, but if we look ahead in chapter 8, verse 10, which is kind of the aftermath of uh, the deliverance that we're going to see, Judges 8.10 gives us the detail that Midian has 135,000 soldiers. Now consider, 300 versus 135,000. 
Imagine you were part of that band of 300 soldiers. You're facing 450 times a force of your own. A force that's 450 times bigger than yours. How are you going to win this? How could Israel possibly win such a lopsided matchup? Oh, it's lopsided, all right, but not in the way that it first appears. All right, having observed these details, let's ask a few more interpretation questions. Which soldiers are better? Those who cup the water in their hands to drink it, or those who kneel to drink it? We might make an argument one way or the other, but actually there's probably no relation between martial skill and how you drink water. <laughs> because we see... What is the main point of this distinction in how people are drawing water? It's to drastically reduce the army size. You say, oh, but if they cup it to their mouths, maybe they're more watchful soldiers. Eh, maybe, but that doesn't seem to be God's point. The point is, I want to drastically reduce this number. Let's take the rarer form of drinking water so that your force is quite small. Yeah, I see... Uh, Roy, you're looking ahead to what I what I basically want to ask when I want to direct us towards th thinking. From a human perspective, what are the odds of 300 defeating 135,000? Basically nil. It's impossible. So why does God arrange for an impossible engagement? It's actually exactly what Roy has written in the chat. God is going to work through Gideon and these 300 men against this huge Midianite force so that it's clear God is the one who brings the victory. God is the one with the power and who grants the victory, not man. Now again, this is the truth that we've seen emphasized before in the Old Testament and we're going to see it emphasized again because it's a thing that we just don't want to believe in our sinful flesh. We want to rely on our own power. But God says, no, I'm the one with the power. Look, I brought down the walls of Jericho without you doing anything practical to bring them down. Look, I destroyed the chariots of Egypt when they pursued Israel in the Red Sea. I'm the one who has the power. I'm the one who brings deliverance. And I'm working on your behalf if you know me. So trust me. And that's what we're seeing here. But God's not done emphasizing his power. Let's actually continue on in Judges chapter 7. Again, I'll summarize a little bit of the verses here. Judges 7 verses 10 to 14. We see that the 300 men of Gideon are getting ready to engage the camp of Midian below them in the Herod Valley. So I've put a little map here on the screen. There's the Jezreel Valley, which you might remember from our geography lesson. And the very edge of it is the Herod Valley, which goes towards the Jordan River. They are on the opposite sides of this valley. Gideon at the spring of Herod near Mount Gilboa and the armies of Midian near the Hill of Moray. So at the base of the Hill of Moray. Now, they're getting ready to engage, but Gideon is still fearful. God says, hey, if you want one more assurance, I'll give it to you. Go down into the camp of Midian, and there's going to be some encouragement waiting for you. Gideon goes down there during the night, and he overhears two enemy soldiers talking. One relates a dream to the other, and the other person interprets the dream. And the interpretation is quite startling. The... The enemy soldier, he says, oh, you know, the interpretation of this dream is that there's a leader of Israel named Gideon who's going to come and totally defeat us. <laughs> Gideon and a couple of his uh, compadres are overhearing this. They're encouraged and they return to the camp of Israel and they initiate the battle plan. So let's see what plays out in verses 15 to 25. Judges 7 verses 15 to 25. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for Yahweh has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the three hundred men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them, with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, Look at me, and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp, and say, For Yahweh, and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the, t of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, A sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. 
When they blew three hundred trumpets, Yahweh set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Bethshita towards Zerara, as far as the edge of Abel Mahola by Tabith. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and Almanasa, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian, and take the waters before them, as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Bethbara and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb, while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Wow. Well, let's make some more observations on this section. Gideon divides his men, his 300 men, into three groups, 100 men each. These three groups spread out around Midian's camp, armed with just trumpets and torches. Horns, basically, don't think of a modern trumpet. They have these torches covered by pitchers, and at Gideon's signal, all the men blow their trumpets, they break their pitchers, and they shout a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. What's the result? Verse 21 says, the enemy cries out and they flee. But verse 22 clarifies what God does. God throws the enemy army into a panic so that the enemy soldiers kill one another as they flee. Now, as Midian is running away and destroying itself, notice Gideon calls out the nearby tribes of Israel to pursue Midian and even seize strategic choke points. Midian would be fleeing east out of the Herod Valley, back towards the east where they came from, so they're going to need to cross the Jordan. So they have to find a ford to do that. There are some strategic choke points. And Gideon says, Israel, other tribes, go and seize these points. And they do. Judges 8.10, that text in the next chapter I already mentioned, it tells us that 120,000 Midianites fall this way, along with their two leaders, Oreb and Zeb. Another section in Judges 8, Judges 8, verses 10 to 17, it tells us how then Gideon pursues and destroys the remaining 15,000 of Midian with just his 300 men. Now, that's still quite an engagement. 300 versus 15,000? They go into the battle, and the Midianite army is completely destroyed. And that's exactly what God promised, isn't it? You will destroy them as one man. Totally. Now, this victory is so wonderful that at the end of chapter 8, the people of Israel ask Gideon to become their king. But he declines. And he reminds them that Yahweh is Israel's king. All right, with these observations, let's go to one, one more set of interpretation questions. Previously, Gideon looked weak, fearful, and inadequate. But how does Gideon show himself here? He shows himself to be, indeed, a valiant warrior, a mighty man. How is that possible? Well, it's because Gideon believes what God told him. Albeit after several confirming signs, four miraculous signs from God. But he believes God, and he shows this belief by attacking the Midianites, not just once, but continually until they're totally destroyed. So God's word regarding Gideon comes true in every way. God is with Gideon, Gideon is strong, and Gideon does smite the Midianites as one man. But what is the source of Gideon's strength? Not himself, it's God, and it's God's promises. But why does God choose to bring victory to Israel in this way? Well, it's as we were already understanding when we were considering uh, the size of the army, it is to make clear, once again, that God is the one with power, that he loves his people, that he is faithful to them, and that he will bring victory when they are obedient. To be sure, Gideon's attack plan was daring, and some might credit just the element of surprise in psychological warfare for Israel's success. But the text makes clear, especially in verse 22, that it's God that made Midian flee, panic, and destroy one another. God could have easily have made things turn out differently. Yes, maybe Gideon would have surprised the Midianites, but God could have caused Midian to rally, turn around, and destroy Gideon's little band. You know, it's actually amazing to me, as you study history, uh, great contests, military engagements, or even sports contests today, it's amazing how one little moment can 
turn out for victory or turn out for defeat. Like an injury on the field, let's say, in a, in a modern sports engagement. That could demoralize a team. Or it could fire up a team. You never know how something is going to affect the people. It's really in God's hands. You can't, you can't necessarily predict it, and you can't totally control it. Actually, it's all under God's control. And it's the same thing throughout history. It's amazing how, how victory appears many times in history when it seems like it never would, or the opposite, defeat. This is because God is the one with the power, not man. And he's showing it once again. Yes, it's a, it was a bold plan from Gideon, yet it was God who brought the victory. God used Gideon's tactic as part of the deliverance, but even the stratagem came from God and its effectiveness. All the glory goes to God. So let's come back to our first question. Why did God choose Gideon to be Israel's deliverer? It's to further emphasize this point that I just mentioned. A weak, fearful man from a weak clan, he becomes a strong warrior when God empowers him. You see, God is making a very important point with Gideon that we all need to hear. God's saying, I'm the one with the power, and I cause the weak to become strong. How so? God says, I give them my presence, I give them my promises, and even my power, so that these ones believe me, obey, and experience the blessing. Now, God could have delivered Israel without Gideon. He didn't need Gideon. But he chose to have Gideon involved because he's making a point to all Israel and us today about obedience. Don't be afraid of obeying the Lord. Don't be afraid of the obstacles in your path. Don't be afraid of the enemies of God that you encounter. God says, look what I'm able to do with you, yes, even you, when you obey me. I can make 300 put 135,000 to flight. It's not Gideon who's special. It's God. And God chooses to use Gideon to make that point. Obey me like weak Gideon does, God says, and you can become strong. You can be empowered for the work set before you. Doesn't the Apostle Paul say something similar in the New Testament? Second Corinthians 12, 9. Paul's talking about his thorn in the flesh. God, this is really hard for me. I feel like I can barely go on. Won't you remove this thorn? God says, my power is perfected in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. This will glorify me when you realize that you can't do it on your own. We need to realize the same thing today. You think about your difficult circumstances, even the one that we're all experiencing, and we say, God, I can't take any more of this. Or God, how am I supposed to be faithful during this time? This is, this is too much. This is too hard. Well, if you're experiencing that, if you're saying that to yourself, that's exactly where God wants you. He says, yes, you're realizing that you need me. You're realizing, ultimately, you weren't the one in control. You weren't the one with the power. But you know what? Continue to look to me, trust me, God says, and obey me in this, and you will put my glory on display. That's why Paul says, after God said to him what he did in 2 Corinthians 12, I will gladly boast in my weaknesses. I will gladly boast in how inadequate I am for the tasks set before me, even as I pursue them so that God may be glorified. Because God uses us, yes, even us, these little clay pots, to put his magnificent glory on display. And with this truth in mind, Why is it so tragic that Israel seeks to make Gideon their king? After this mighty deliverance, why is it actually tragic that Israel tries to make Gideon king? What do you think? think there is definitely a relation to what we were just saying. Think about it. All right, think, yeah, Mark, you've, you've got it. Israel has missed the point. I mean, the thing, the very thing that God was showing and emphasizing, Israel missed. 
and we don't we won't look at the text specifically, but in Judges 8, they say, be our king and fight our battles for us. Now, Gideon says to them, yeah, just as Liz is mentioning, they already have a king. And it was God, their king, who was giving them the victory, not Gideon. But they don't want to look to God. They want to look to Gideon. Gideon, you are the one who brought about this mighty deliverance. You be our king. They missed it. They missed the point. They were looking to man for their deliverance. And just as Mark said, this is vain. God uses man, but man's not the one with the power. It's God. And they apparently weren't seeing that. I mean, imagine if something similar were happening with the church and the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul, he's this weak man made strong by the Lord. And imagine if the church said, you know, Paul, you are the one leader. We want to just obey and follow you. I want to forget everybody else. It's just going to be you. Be our leader. You're the one with the power. How would Paul have reacted to that? No, absolutely not. Christ is your one leader, and he's the one with the power. I'm appointed as an apostle, yes, but I'm still only a weak man. My ministry is empowered by Christ, just as yours is. If you believe him. So what about us? We've got to take these things home and apply them for us today, don't we? We have tasks set before us, tasks of evangelism, discipleship, ministry in the church, sanctification. We need to overcome sin. We need to put sin to death. But where's the power for this going to come from? How are we going to get through the difficulties that we face? How will we endure? How will we overcome? Do we look to things in the world? to cause us to do so? Do we look merely to people, to money, to worldly wisdom to overcome these challenges? Or do we look to the promises and presence of God? Because Jesus repeats what God says to Gideon, doesn't he? Matthew 28, when he's addressing his disciples, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Now here's what I'm commissioning you to do. Go, Make disciples and baptize them and teach them. For I am with you, even to the end of the age. Do we realize that? Do we believe that? Do we realize that it is God's presence that empowers us? I am working in you, God says. I will bring you to victory if you follow me, if you believe in me, and don't rely on your flesh. Don't believe what your flesh tells you. Do we look to the Lord? Or do we look to ourselves? Yeah, Roy, you're right. Israel is going to continue to miss this point. I mean, Israel will get things at certain times and not at other times. But yeah, when they ask for Saul, it's for the same reason. It's because they want to rely on man and not God. And even King Saul, his whole life is characterized by that perspective, when he's pursuing David, or when he's not fully obeying the Lord, it's because he wants to rely on man's strength. He's so fearful of losing the people's support because he thinks he needs it to maintain his kingship and to win his battles. But David stands like a foil, somebody who actually relies on God, and God brings about great victory through David. We need to rely on the Lord too. Do we sometimes feel like God hasn't given us enough, that God has left us high and dry. God, I want to obey you, but you just haven't given me enough resources. I mean, these circumstances are impossible. I just don't have enough. Do we sometimes feel this? We're inadequate to actually overcome our sin or to do ministry. Now, if you are in Christ, if you know the Lord, then you have been made adequate through Christ. God has granted you all his necessary resources. Yes, you do need to actually make use of them and become trained in them. You have his spirit. You have his word. You have his church. You have the ministry of all the different gifts in the church. These things are given to you so that you are able to obey and be made strong in your God, Yahweh. By faith, God makes the weak strong. He makes the inadequate fully equipped. Isn't, isn't that one of the things that we celebrate when it comes to the Word of God? 
that this is not a mere man-made word, but it is the very breath of God. And it rebukes, it corrects, it instructs, and it makes a person adequate, or we could say complete, completely equipped for uh, for life and godliness, for, for what we encounter in this life. God has adequately provided for us, and we can even go to 1 Corinthians 10. We think about the troubles and temptations and experiences we have today, and God says, look, there's nothing that you're experiencing that is not common to man. Everybody is experiencing this in one form or another. And I will not tempt you. I will not put you in a situation that you're not able to bear. I will always make it so that victory and deliverance is available. But you need to take my word seriously. You need to trust me. You need to obey me. And you need to flee from sin. So God has not left us high and dry at all. That's just the flesh speaking. That's just pride speaking. God has provided all that we need. The strength is not in us, but it is in him. Do we believe that? One other question here, along the same lines. Gideon is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. Yes, even Gideon. Weak, fearful Gideon was made into a valiant warrior. And we can be too. But will we? We are responsible for how we respond to this truth. So what will we do? What about you, specifically? Will you continue to look for yourself, look to yourself, and excuse failures and inaction due to your own weakness? Yes, God, I know you called me to do this, but you know, I'm just so weak. You know, I can't do it. Sometimes we say this to ourselves, don't we? Will we continue to do that in light of what we've just read in Judges today? Or will we take God at his word, proceed in his strength, Obey by faith and behold the victory and blessing. Yes, you are weak. We are all weak, spiritually, even physically. But God is strong. So he says, when you don't overcome, it's, it's because you weren't looking to me. You were relying on yourself. Don't excuse your failure. Don't excuse your inaction due to your own weakness, actually, that should be the thing that causes you to run after God. God, I need your strength. I need your life. I don't have it on my own. He's a good father who, when his children cry out in need, he he gives to them what they need. But to cry out requires that humble, trusting position. That's not what the flesh wants to do. So where we haven't done this, brothers and sisters, where we haven't done this, we need to repent. And this may be a thing that we have to repent of multiple times as God continues to show us where we're still not trusting him or where we're still being proud. Yes, even now in the coronavirus situation, when you're starting to get angry or you're starting to be impatient and you just want things to be over with, yes, it is a difficult circumstance. And maybe you feel like you're coming to the end of yourself. Maybe not yet, maybe later on. But you know what? It's precisely in that moment where you say, God, this is where you want me and I need to trust you. Lord, I need to cling to you and I need to proceed forward in faith, obeying the Lord, because he will vindicate that faith. Maybe he won't remove the difficult circumstances. Actually, many times he won't. But he will give you the ability to persevere, the ability to endure. Just as Paul says, right? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That is Christ. Didn't mean I could do whatever I wanted. You mean that I can endure any situation, the strength that Christ provides, the strength that God provides. That strength is ours if we know Christ, but it requires humble trust in the Lord. Well, that's all for this week. If you have a question or a comment about what um, what I've mentioned today, feel free to post in the chat. I'll hang around a little bit afterwards to interact with it. But next week, we're going to continue on in the book of Judges and look at the final judge that's mentioned in this book, and that's Samson. Samson is a judge well known for his strength, but also for his weakness. His spiritual weaknesses are quite glaring. In many ways, he reflects the increasing corruption of Israel that we see in the book of Judges. And even Samson is called a man of faith, and he is used by God to powerfully deliver Israel. 
What can we learn from Samson? Talk about that more next time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it is a word that uh, reproves our unbelief, but Lord, also encourages our faith. So God, I pray, Lord, that you would build faith in your people. Lord, that we would repent of sin and unbelief, but that we instead would take hold of you even in our weakness, actually because of our weakness, and that we would become mighty men, women, and children of faith. Lord, I pray that you would encourage and help and keep your promises to your people just as you will. And yet, God, we know it is righteous to pray for that so we can give you the glory whenever we see the answer. Uphold the people at Calvary and anyone else listening today, God, and vindicate their faith, Lord, as they look to you in whatever circumstance they find themselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining me today. Again, I'll be interacting in the comments for a little bit, but otherwise I'll see you next time. Yeah, Liz, uh, it's a good point that you make. Actually, in this quarantine mode, it's uh, as difficult as it is, it's actually it's given us increased opportunity in some ways to draw near to God. Maybe being stuck at home or being forced not to do things that you normally would do, that gives you more time to seek the Lord and the Word and in prayer. And you say, all right, well, I'm not able to fellowship others in the church. Well, you are in, in some different ways, maybe some ways that you're not used to, maybe through technology or over the phone, but this is actually a great time to draw near with the Lord. Yeah, God is getting our attention in a particular way, even through the coronavirus Yes, Roy, these are some hard truths. Uh, Any truth that forces us to be humble is hard, and it's one that even when we realize it and learn, we often have to relearn it, and yet it is the weight of blessing, isn't it? It was hard for Gideon, in a certain sense, to give up his reliance on man and to let go his fear of man, but when he did, he got to see the great glory of God in this astounding victory. And we'll see a version of that even in our own lives. Not that everything will become prosperous for us, but we'll see the joy of the Lord, the peace of God, and even victory over sin when we are willing to trust the Lord and be humble before Him. See, many of you mentioning thanks. I'm glad to be able to share this time with you. Thank you for joining Yeah, Mark, you mentioned Isaiah 45. So let me uh, pull up that text. Isaiah 45, verses 5 to 7. I am Yahweh, and there is no other besides there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, and uh, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am Yahweh, there is no other. One forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am Yahweh who does all these things. Yeah, it's a good text. Emphasizing God is the one in control. When he brings uh, great prosperity, it's actually pointing to him. And when he brings great calamity, it's pointing to him. He's the one in control and he needs to, to remind us of that. You know, it's actually really gracious of the Lord that things are not always easy and prosperous for us. Because what would we do? We would do just or likely what we would do, we would do what Israel did. When things went well, they forgot God. They just said, oh, you know, why do I need to worry about the Lord? I've got everything that I want and need right here. God says, you're you're looking at it the wrong way. These things are actually meant to point you to me, to cause you to draw close to me as the one who grants you these blessings. And you, you need to rely on me continually. So, may we learn that lesson, and may we... Uh, may we know the blessing that comes from it. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure, everyone. Uh, Thank you again for sharing this time together with me. Uh, I pray that the rest of your time of, of worship and learning at Calvary would be a blessing. Yeah, Leroy, you're right. COVID-19, in its own way, is... A powerful example of how God glorifies himself. He uses it for his people's good. And he uses it to show the world that, yeah, you need the Lord. 
We are finite creatures. We all are under the shadow of death. And without God's deliverance, there is no hope. And so let's let's share that hope with the, the people that we know and that we get to interact with even at this time. All right, I'm going to sign off. If you have anything else you'd like to share, question or comment, please email me. But otherwise, have a wonderful Sunday, and I'll see you again soon.